Come, linger, and join the conversation as we sit at the feet of Rabbi Jesus in the upper room. In this week's Upper Room Conversation, the guys discuss what it means to live life together according to the Bible. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Upper Room. This is Brian, and sitting across from me is Giles again. Uh, Welcome back, Giles. Thanks, Brian. Hey, you know, um, we decided to tell our story here a little bit about how we came to be together and doing this. We told about um, the Upper Room and how we named it, and then now it's kind of this backstory, and I want to kick off, Giles, by sharing a little bit with you about this um, struggle that I was going through that began this process leading to this place that we're in today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing it. Hey, so I found myself, um, and this is just a little bit more of my testimony, and this was you know, a year ago or so, maybe 18 months, Giles shared with me a book. Uh, it's called The Choice, The Christ-Centered Pursuit of Kingdom Outcomes. Authors are Gary Hogue, Scott Roden, and Wesley Kilmer. Giles uh, offered that up to me. Uh, we call it light reading around the place. And it was, he said, hey, here's some, just some light reading. Why don't you check this out? And really, it was a part of my development as a director uh, on the board of directors uh, with a prior ministry opportunity that we were a part of. And it was really part of my development to grow and become more of a leader. And it really had this result in me that I wasn't expecting. And Giles asked me to sum that up as we kick off today. And I, I just want to sum it up. Um, the authors of The Choice quote our good friend A.W. Tozer, another one that uh, brings some light reading into our world. And Tozer has this great um, quote in The Pursuit of God that I think really, really sets the stage for these struggles that I was having. And then, Giles, I'll let you share a little bit about the struggles you were having. And here it is, Tozer from The Pursuit of God. There is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. Things, stuff, have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. God's gifts now take the place of God, and the whole course of nature is upset by the monstrous substitution. Any thoughts? No, that's pretty deep, and actually, (laughs) I think you're going to dive into it a bit here, but I really, that line about God's gifts have taken place of God, I mean, if I'm thinking about what that means, and I think I'm thinking what you're thinking, uh, I really want to hear sort of how that kind of quote from Tozer really had an impact on you. Well, paint the picture. I mean, is here I was. I'm your average Joe um, living in suburbia in a neighborhood, stick-built houses where every third one looks identical. I have directly next to me, I, you know, I have a, a house on each side to the left and the right, three, cross, three houses across the street. We do have a pond behind us, but, you know, I got, there's a bunch of houses. So, I, you know, I've got neighbors all around me. And yet, and I had everything. I've got the two cars and the motorcycle. I've got the lawnmower. I've got the fence. I've got the dog. I've got the canoe and the fishing gear and the hunting gear. And I have you know, what seems to be everything right there. And yet that question about this need to possess really set me down a path of what it meant to share. And God really started challenging me, and you and I started talking through this. You started coaching me through it and asking questions about, well, what does that mean for you, and how does that look moving forward? And that really just started off one of, like this, this holy discontent that was going on in me that something was awry and God was getting ready to do something big. As you're sharing... I'm thinking, too, that simultaneously God in these moments was working 
in regards to our heart of how we could do ministry better with each other. How could we serve together better? And at that time, I'm currently living almost an hour away, and we're just finding it difficult to find time to be with each other. And it's not a desire issue because I felt that we really desired. We were having these great conversations on the phone. But as we're starting to dream about what things can be, we realize that there are actually some real physical barriers. And when we're talking about the sharing aspect over here, a lot of these physical barriers came from, honestly, uh, the fact of how individualistic we both were. And I believed I had shed a lot of those things because I had gone and served overseas and I had sold everything, as you guys remember from my testimony. But I found myself back in, here in America, and even though I had downsized my life dramatically, I was my wife and I were still doing things pretty much on our own, living life on our own. But there was a realization that if we were truly going to serve with each other, that that couldn't be the answer, that that was not the most feasible answer. And so we really began to look at Scripture, Brian and I, to see, you know, where might we find the answer. And one of the things that was revealed to us through this process was also a book. Um, Brian was talking about Tozer, but Bonhoeffer's Life Together book. And there's a section I want to just share because I think it sort of talks about how do you actually... So we, we're now thinking about things, and we know that we're being... Uh, self-centered and individualistic in how we are um, accepting the gifts from God, but we're struggling with generosity. But can it just be that Brian and I are sitting across from each other having this conversation, or is there something more? And this is really where Bonhoeffer started to lead us down a path, uh, which to discovery about how it, how it could be, how it could be if we just... Uh, open our hearts, our minds, and our souls uh, to receive what God wanted to tell us. And so the section, it talks about, you know, it says, because Christ is at the center and stands between me and others, I dare not desire direct fellowship with them. As only Christ can speak to me in such a way that I may be saved, so others too can be saved, only by Christ himself. This means that I must release the other person from every attempt of mine to regulate coerce, and dominate him with my love. So this is even people that we care about, but how still with the individualistic attitude we want to dominate those things. The other person needs to retain his independence of me, to be loved for what he is as one for whom Christ became man, died, and rose again, for whom Christ brought forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It takes the life of the other person into its own hands, this situation. Um, this is the, what human love will do. And I believe that in our controlling nature, this is what we desire to do. But the spiritual love, so we realize this had to be of the spirit. Spiritual love recognizes the true image of the other person, which he has received from Jesus Christ. The image that Jesus Christ himself embodied and would stamp upon all men. And as we read that, one of the things we realized was with this consuming nature and this ever grasping and seeking nature, we weren't actually allowing the other individual, we don't allow other individuals to actually live out their God image because it's never meant to be just our own. It's always meant to be shared. And so we looked at that at the spiritual sense, but then we started to dive a little deeper into what does that feel? physically mean. So Brian, I'm going to kick it back to you just for a minute. Um, because maybe start sharing a little bit of what the term we found, um, and then how it applied to scripture. Well, and, and even, even before I get to that, I, I want to, I want to tag on to what you were saying because it just really brought up a connection to the struggle that I was having so we, you know, we, so we identified this need to possess and this need to own. Yes. 
And I think that one of the very first, and I think one of the most natural conversations was, well, Giles, you, you guys are getting to the end of your apartment lease. Why don't you just come down here and live with us? And I think I know now that opening my home that I had been in for, been in for 15 years and offering that to you was exactly what you were reading there about not honoring that God image in you because it was, yes, yes, it was being generous, but at its root, it was also still being possessive. There was no risk in it. There was no risk in it for me for us to do that um, in, under that roof of the old house. And I think that, you know, that was part of the thought process that we bounced ideas back and forth. Another one was having you just move down to another apartment here in the local area where we would be closer. But even still, that didn't solve this that same thing, that same need to possess, because there would still be things that would be needed in living separately in that way. Yes, one was already yours, the house you'd already possessed. It already had all that um, identity to it. And then the other was we would be closer physically, but I don't know if it would actually have built any kind of real new intimacy because we still would have been living separately from each other. So I think it was almost out of our own sense of knowledge because we were relying again so culturally on the norms. And I believe, honestly, that we didn't even have a term or definition of something that would really be different than that. I think I remember having a conversation with my brother and he said, Oh, there's this co-living community up in Chicago. We have some friends that live there. I'm sure they'd love to talk to you if you, if you have any questions for them. And even that didn't solve this angst and this problem that we were sensing. And so as we've tried to make uh, a pattern here, Giles was saying, we are going to go to scripture and we weren't surprised and we aren't surprised by these things. This is the way God chooses to interact with us on a regular basis is you, we have this, have this struggle, we have this issue, we have this moment in time where God presses pause and steps into the game and steps into the picture and he steps in the story of Acts, the very early church in Acts 2 verses 42 through 47. Yes, and I'm going to share those. Um, And there's a couple other verses that we'll share with you as well, leading up to an actual definition and term in Greek, which we have misused in so many, uh, pretty much in most of the translations, and we have misused as um, Christians. I know in a lot of areas, but especially here in the United States. I can't speak to every part of the world, but I can speak to what I know of Christianity in America. Um, So the Acts 2 uh, verse is, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. As I read that verse... Um, Brian, I'm just realizing the depth of what they view as community and what they view um, as what actually living life together looks like. And if I'm looking at it from my own cultural background, I'm having some struggles, but we'll get to those in a bit. But I want to share that there's also some other scripture verses, right? And uh, can you share a couple of those with us? 
Sure, I think you know definitely Psalm 133 comes to mind and fits so much so well well with and meshes up with the Acts verse and Psalm 133 verse one. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. Man, I don't know that you can accomplish that living in any other way. I I I mean, I've, we're we're in our forties. I haven't seen it lived out in in any other way with friends of ours. Uh, I don't, and like you said earlier, we just don't have an example of what that might look like because it's so. Okay, so the word harmony, right? So just the again the nature of that word and the nature of what's being said here. It's so um, non-segmented. Can I, can I use that, a non-segmented life? Like a life that is not all of these different things. A life that doesn't consist of Allison and I in an apartment and you in a house. A life that doesn't consist of even us being in the same area in the same house, but being of this is their house and we are guests in some room off to the side. A life that is not resolved by let's have lunch twice a week at your office and we're going to figure out this um, disciple-making movement. I, I, can I say those things? I think that's that's a great way to put it. And I think for people that I think are, are is our audience that we're talking to, many people have had experiences with um, the Western Church, the, the American Church, Protestant Church, Catholic, whatever it might be, and small groups. And I think what you were just describing there, I mean, that came to mind. It was, it was, well, I have my small group that meets in my house, and I have my worship that meets at the church on Sunday morning, and the youth group meet in this in this other room at a different time. And I have my work during the day that I go and I'm an underwriter or I'm a teacher or I'm a fireman and everything is all chopped up into the pie, into that segmented pie. And God was really breaking apart that concept, this concept of living together, of life together and saying the biblical example appears to be that there was no division between those things. There was no there was no pie chart. And there was such a knowledge base too, right? There's such a knowledge base of understanding someone else and where they're at. So, you know, in 2 Corinthians we see that, right? 8, 14, and 15. Right now you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. And so... You know, I know we don't like saying words like equal or, you know, getting caught up into those things because we get up caught up sometimes in political aspects of that. But, I mean, we're talking about a situation in which how would you know what someone needs? Right. If I don't live life together with you, how would I know these things? Are you just going to willingly share that with me? Or are you going to do what I think most of us will do, which is, actually go more into hiding. So how are they saying that these are examples? And what are they actually saying is happening? Because, I mean, this is scripture. This is not some wacky thing that I'm just, that we're talking about here or some crazy kind of concept. This is actually what scripture says. So we're not reading outside of scripture. And then you get into Acts 4. And now we're talking about, they take Acts 2 and they go a little bit further. Right? So, Brian, why don't you share a little bit about Acts 4? Yeah, in Acts 4, verses 32, and 32, 33, and all the way to 35, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they had owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. There's that concept of ownership and the need to possess that just didn't exist. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and would bring the money to the apostles and give to those in need. And they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. I mean, that is where the crux, that's the crux. That's where we found ourselves in this situation, in this conversation. 
we were calling things our own. But God had a bigger plan, and that plan did not include us doing things individually, hoping to work for God in that way. He did not have that as the plan. So I'm going to bring up a term now because I think we need to get into it. So we've been sharing with you some verses and some scripture. But there's actually a Greek word that's used in the New Testament, and it's called koinonia. And we have been you've been hearing us say life together, which is probably one of the closer definitions. Um, but it says that it is one of the easiest and the hardest things to describe. So you see where we find ourselves. So we can describe and say, well, life together, and we can describe certain aspects. But then when it actually gets to the application, now we're talking about it's a little bit harder. This is how do you apply this? And so um, we may be comfortable with the term in the churches of fellowship. And a lot of times in scripture, this is actually the Greek word koinonia has been translated into fellowship. But I think we've sort of taken fellowship and changed the meaning to something that it is not. So uh, we basically have it as these are things that take place during worship, sort of as Brian was saying, during worship, after church services, um, small group gatherings, but does not include this term of what is happening Monday through Saturday in your home and your workplace. So together is not only an, this abstract thing, it happens in life. So it prevents us from viewing our life as these individuals, but viewing our life in community as Christ followers and that God is going to work through that. You know, I think about... I think about the, and, and, and this is an experience that we've actually lived through. I think about the instance where you're with a group of people that you think you're in really tight, close-knit community with, and and somebody drops a bomb on you that their marriage is no longer going on. Uh, we, we have another very close relationship currently where it's um, it's a leader at an organization uh, uh, that has been has had infidel and it's these things where you think you're in close community and then you have these these reminders and these this question of how on earth did that happen without me knowing about it and and there and there it is right there's that there's that issue that we're continuing to butt up against and koinonia Koinonia, this biblical example, this biblical model, seems to be quite a bit of this of, of the antithesis of all of those. Well, wait a minute, they're constantly praying and in unity together. Wait a minute, they are sharing everything that they own. Wait a minute, they're in har- there's harmony in the spirit. And also there's less need in the in this in this koinonia term. What makes koinonia different, say, than us just sharing life together? So Brian and I looking across and sort of that quote I started with, that direct point-to-point, and uh, we see Bonhoeffer has an issue with that. So what is he trying to say? Well, koinonia actually, though, means that there is something in common. So what is it, Brian? Is it do we? Is it goods in common? Is it uh, property in common? Is it all of these tangible things that we can have in common? Is that what we share in common, or what do we share in common? Well, yes, all of those things. But first and foremost, koinonia doesn't happen without Jesus at the center of that. Right at the center of our relationship at the, at the center of our personal at the center of, of my number one relationship and your number one relationship my wife's number one relationship your wife's number one relationship that's when it starts to happen so this is how we move right out of the worldly sense of things like socialism communism right these are worldly systems but these are not the systems of god this actually is what we're doing is we are 
co-participating in our common faith and our common common understanding of who Jesus Christ is. You know, that, that, it's a great word, co-participating. Uh, I think about the number of people that I know that you graduate from college, uh, you and you move home, and you're an adult with a job living in your parents' house, but I don't know that you're to that place yet where you may have the equality that we're talking about, the, the equality in, in Christ and in equality in decision-making and so on and so forth. I even think about my own life where um, my my sister um, and her family and, 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 and my family at different times, when we were building our houses, we stayed with my parents for a short period of time. So we were even further down the road and even still you were, it still wasn't quite that same and the the same thing. And I think that what was missing for me in that time, in that time when it was me, when it was me that had moved in with my parents and the difference because, and and because I'm trying to bring it to terms that our listeners might, might be able to relate to that. They might be able to, to have a reference point of, like you know, where are they at with this, and where are they headed, and 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 I think that that having Christ at the at the center, you know, when I was living, when I was less mature in my faith, and I was still working out this whole idea of my own possessions, and still trying to build my own kingdom, right? That that's where the tensions arise, right? That's where the personalities clash. Is that you're trying to hang on to your piece of the pie your piece of the of your kingdom and establish some sort of dominance and rule when really that's not it's not for either one of us to take and this koinonia forces by its very nature and i'm going to let brian actually this is i'm springing this on him so if he struggles i'm going to try to give him throw him some pieces because i believe that he has an experience in life or a visual that will help us understand koinonia better. But the word I want to say is this requires a reliance on Christ because he's the center. There's a reliance aspect. And so Brian has shared before with you about his baseball background. And so I I think we should sort of try to describe koinonia in terms of a baseball diamond with a pitcher in the center and your first baseman, second baseman, third baseman. And what does koinonia do that's a little different from the normal method? If I'm throwing from home plate to second, what is a requirement for me to do? Well, I'm going to help him out here. (laughs) In the koinonia model with Christ at the center, we can imagine that Christ is the pitcher. So instead of throwing straight to second, Sure. From home plate, what I'm, I'm having to throw every pass, every every um, right. Yeah, and and it's and it's I don't through have the pitcher to, through the pitcher, and I don't have to throw it as far. I don't have to have as much strength. I still have to play my part. I still have to play my right. role. Right. But I don't have to get it all the way. And if the pitcher's not there, it can't happen. So the reliance is the pitcher is a pivotal mark individual within every play. Now, baseball baseball would become quite cumbersome if that was a requirement. Right. But it gives you at least a visual about what's happening. If I'm on first base, and even if I want to throw it to second, I have to throw it to the pitcher, the pitcher throws it to the second baseman. And so that this individual in Christ is always at the center of every decision, every play, every movement, and so although he has given us roles and responsibilities and accountability to him within our own walk, when we do this life together, he requires that he is a part and, the, and that he is the critical element in all of those things. Well, I think I remember the conversation now that you're referring back to. The, the term that we would use in baseball, which hasn't been around for years and years and years, is the player coach. Mm. Back in the older days of baseball, and one of the reasons that the coaches wear uniforms on the sidelines is because originally the guys coaching third base or coaching in the dugout or coaching first base, they were actually on the roster and could insert themselves into the game and play. And Jesus is that player coach that that not only orchestrates the game, 
and dictates the rules of engagement, but also inserts himself, uh, not just inserts himself, we also have to give him that role. We have to yield to that role every time. I, I mean, because I might have the strength to throw it over his head and get it to second base or get it to where it needed to go, but he requires this act of submission that, and things actually work and operate more smoothly with him playing that role. As we speak about Koinonia, it is also, we're also describe here to you that it is not singular moments or decisions. It actually, it, an event takes place or it is a prolonged, it's it's not a singular incident. It's like there's a bunch of things going on simultaneously. Um, so I'm going to take a simple verse from Scripture that we've all heard before, and I'm going to break it down into how is this actually koinonia, what's actually taking place. Okay. So I think that's a great way to give viewers sure. or listeners a ability to understand what we're talking about. So Romans 15.26 says, Believers in Macedonia... And Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. And so if I asked you just off the top of your head, Brian, what's just the action that took place in that scenario? Well, it was a, it was a simple giving. I mean, right. it was a simple release. They, took up, right. they just took up an offering. Right. But here's actually how, when you use koinonia in there, which is in there, how it actually be written out or what it actually meant. So yes, collection or offering was what we would be translating. But however, the act of koinonia is not the offering itself, nor the act of giving itself. It is the entire event. Everything from the first thing they had in common, which is, let's do this together, the cold hard cash, the participating together, the action of making the cash contributions, and the people of the church who participate together in the giving, collecting, and delivering of the gift to the saints in Jerusalem. All of this is a koinonia event. So, I mean, that suddenly expands that verse because there are all kinds of things going on, but they're doing them all in common. So you've got, I think probably at the beginning, we're talking about a common, a decision being made among a group of people. Yes, we're all in accord and we're all in agreement and we're going to do this. You've got the actual gifts and talents, and in this case, maybe it may be financial, but gifts and talents because it's going to come into play for the people delivering it as well. But you get the gift and talents of those people that are coming into play. Right, because part of that is too, even as they were working to raise funds, individuals within that group were working for a common goal. And then... And then somebody may have just coincidentally, which, you know, is a term that we joke around with quite a bit that, you know, there are really no coincidences, but, oh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to Jerusalem next week to see, to see my friend Josh. Um, Why don't I just take that with me? And so even the orchestration of the gifts, talents, abilities, timing, work, jobs, and those kind of things all play into that same idea again there is no pie and really there are other cultures in the world that get that so much better than we do in our individualistic western culture i want to clarify at this time that as we were having these discussions we did not have the term koinonia no so what we were realizing ourselves in this situation was we didn't have an answer to these problems. We had tons of questions. We had tons of questions. And, 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 and it's on here, and we haven't had a chance to hit on it yet. But for me, many of these questions just started with the words, what if? What if? What if all eight of those houses that were around me, what if we had one lawnmower and one weed eater among us? What if? What if? What if all those eight households... We're all dual income, suburban, you know, trying to make things happen. What if my wife and I took on cooking 
one night a week for those eight households? What would that look like? You know, and so there's this idea of giving, of opening up my freezer and giving of the, the, the food that I have stored away. There's, there's an idea of giving, but then there's this, the idea of koinonia and having things in common is totally different. It's a totally different mindset. So we're seeking and we're knocking and we're asking, right? Yep. So we're sitting in this place and we're asking these what ifs, but it's a lot of it theoretical, but we know it's moving towards action because it's how God works, right? So it's then that here's the, our God, <laughs> Jesus, as we started to look to him for the answer, what koinonia actually is began to develop because the first thing to explain here is that koinonia is not an event created by man. It is an event created by God. So you see, our God was gracious enough to invite Brian and I and our families into koinonia. We didn't even know the term, but we were getting invited into it, right? So it includes all of these elements, right? The individuals, Brian and I first, right? And then our families. The actions by which this koinonia will be expressed. Our ministry, we had these questions about how are we going to express the ministry? Um, What are we going to do together for God, right? The common thing that we all shared. So what does that look like? Does it look like Brian's house? But we had realized something was off. Something was off, right? But we didn't know these definitions, people. We did not know these terms because we had never been taught that in this culture, and we'll get to why, but we had never been taught that. And so we're really seeing God work, but not really understanding why. And then this is all of it, though, in God's doing and God's timing. So he's working out all these things, right? So we're having these experiences, but we're not really understanding how to explain them, right? Yeah, more questions than answers, for sure. The second part we came into was this realization that this was not what we had been talking about before, which was, what if all my neighbors shared a lawnmower? These weren't vague concepts. Things seemed to start becoming a little bit more concrete. So koinonia was not vague. It's an actual event where there is a concrete crashing together of all people, actions, and things in common. So we were having multiple events koinonia simultaneously happening around a big koinonia so there so it's like we were having these micro koinonias i guess you could call them right um my one of them one of them was thursday morning discipleship that we were doing and that we were we were one of us was always having to drive 45 minutes or covid happens and we we do it virtually but one of us was always having to travel. Uh, I was having to make arrangements with my work to be late. Um, and, and then, too, once we started this, there was that huge benefit in the debrief that took place even on the drive home that was an added, an added piece of the koinonia that we didn't even expect, we didn't even expect to be happening. That's Yes, and so there was even that micro, micro. Those were just the micro ones. Those were just these, these things going on in our lives that were confirming. They were confirming that we were on the right track. That our they were confirming in our hearts. God was confirming in our hearts that we were on the right track. That we were moving in the right direction. And since we now know that koinonia is not, and so this was knowledge that. Brian, at this point, we start actually seeing this koinonia thing, like, and we're realizing there's actually a definition, and we're, we're, you know, we did some research, and we find out this thing in common, because we had been looking at life together, and the book Bonhoeffer, and so we had been reading some things, and the choice, and so we knew that there was a possibility, but we were trying to see again, what was, what did the early church do? Well, the other thing that we realize is that this wouldn't be resolved by just a location, because koinonia no. is not a location, and a lot of locations, a lot of times when we say location, we would define it as a church in our culture. But that wasn't a church for us, but it was still going to be the same kind of semblance of something like that. But we realized that that couldn't be the driving force as well. 
like just let's get a place and then we'll figure these things out. So koinonia, again, is an event. The church even exists. So the place would have existed, right, even if we hadn't gathered together. Uh, but a place is important if koinonia is going to express itself because living together requires typically a roof over your head or some kind of place. But that is not the extension of koinonia. So that is another thing we realize is that we have to have sort of this thing in common, understood, and then God will provide the place. And we'll get to that story, but we had to have those things understood. So fourth, koinonia is not just a fellowship between people. It is a fellowship between people through Christ, sharing those things in common. So that's sometimes where we get the word fellowship gets a little distorted. Because how many times, I mean, why don't you share about small groups or fellowship times? Yeah, so, so and I would, even, I would even go back to the example from before. Like, you and I had fellowship. Right, absolutely. We were, t- we were uh, you know, our wives would, my wife would joke around with me that, you know, we would go and do, we would do discipleship on Thursday morning together, and then we would talk until about 9, 30, 10 o'clock on the phone. And she's like, you, gotta, you, get, you get your words in for the day? Are you good? And so we had fellowship, and we even had a deep friendship and rich prayer life and intimate sharing of our sin issue. I mean, we, we had, we have intimacy. We have all of those things. We have more fellowship than I've experienced in other environments. And so, yeah, clearly that, that wasn't the issue. And, and what's, what's the word that comes to mind is organic that, that I think listeners will understand. Right. It's a term that's thrown around that we understand in terms of... I never did like the, the small groups that came together forcefully. Well, you know, you're 45 and you have kids, so you belong in the, the navigator's... You know, this is the navigator's classroom or, you know, whatever it might be. And I, I never did... I never did... Um, that that never did really sit with me. You know, you got teenage kids, so you would be really good in this small group or that small group. And it, there was always this element missing to me of the organic coming together of people in unity and love for each other that even can't, you can't fake it. You can't fake it. You can't, you can't fake it till you make it. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why some of those other things just left me feeling empty. That said, I love people. I, I, I love people that I was in community with and small group. Our, our uh, old house church experience that we went through as a group was one of the richest and best expressions of the body of Christ that I've seen. And those are still deep and meaningful relationships as we've got to experience this week. But still not the same as this this concept of koinonia that is being that is unfolding. And again, the way I would describe it was I was all of those things still left me a little bit wanting. Right. And you used the word organic. And I was waiting for you to tie in the Holy Spirit because I think this is something that we sometimes struggle with. We have control issues. As a people, as humans, we have control issues, right? And so we try to wrestle control away from God. Koinonia, I mean, you're putting it out there. And when he said organic, it's because we really don't have great words to use to talk about the actual order, uh, construction, um, straight line, that the Holy Spirit, even as it blows, how God is orderly. So we don't have words to define that, so we use something like organic to try to describe how the Holy Spirit is moving. But the reality is the Holy Spirit had a very direct plan and has a very direct order in which it's doing things. We just have to get out of the way and allow that to happen. And that is a crux of koinonia, which I think is why, even if things are creating spaces and doing things, they destroy koinonia because they remove 
the component of does anything happen with Christ without the Holy Spirit? And the answer is absolutely not. So how can, if that's not moving and making the determination, how can something be koinonia? I mean, that's really the thing. And I believe too, like the house church, I believe there were aspects of koinonia happening. I believe where it struggled was when you got into those control things or other things like that and the perseverance because perseverance does not happen by doing something two hours a week on a Sunday. That does not teach you perseverance. We know that about anything, right? Training of the body, training of the mind requires a lot longer habit activity. Koinonia requires that as an event. It's an ongoing thing. It's not just a moment in time. It's an ongoing thing. Giles, you're, you're bringing that word up again that keeps coming up in this experience of leaning in. That perseverance word, that perseverance in that moment of struggle Am I going to lean in and persevere to the discomfort? And the discomfort is almost always my self-centeredness and my need to control. And even going back to that, even going back to that Tozer quote in um, the pursuit of God and Giles, I mean, that just perfectly describes where I was. I, I was getting to this place of, of, being gen- I was getting to this place of generosity. I had not yet arrived at the place of it all belongs to God. It all belongs to God for his glory, for his purposes, for whatever he might do with it. And how many organizations, ministries are truly, truly centered on that concept of, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna use some terms. Our church, our worship team, our worship service, our youth group, uh, even down to those kinds of things. This need to call it ours and distinguish ourselves from others, when really having Christ at the center of my life is should be the most distinguishing mark for me. And for my ministry and for this this concept of koinonia and the people and the lives that get to be a part of that. And you've said something there that is so powerful because it explains koinonia. And I hope that y'all picked it up, what he said. His generosity and his concept of sharing was between him and Christ, him and Jesus. I'm sitting on the other side of Jesus on that other side, but it is not me that is forcing him or making him make that decision. It is the question of he is, he is walking with God who is saying, this is what you do in Koinonia. And that's what his obedience is to. And so do you see how that works in a relation? That's a very different attitude of a relationship. And the point is, he doesn't have to, we can prompt each other and prod each other because we know we're walking in these things together with our families, but God is talking to him about those things. God is talking to me about those things. And then what happens? It suddenly starts fitting together because koinonia is a perfect puzzle piece. It is a perfect built puzzle. You just have to realize that I don't have to necessarily, I just have to know that his heart is right with God. And that he's working out things with God and hold him accountable to those things. And then God works out all the other business about how koinonia happens. So how does it happen? It happens when we worship, we share goods and resources, we teach another one, we carry out our mission activities and our ministries. It happens when we demonstrate love to those who we do not like. It happens when we gather for meals and for the Lord's Supper, which the Lord's Supper is all about putting Jesus at the center and communion, right? When it happens among us, we praise the God who makes us one. And that's the other thing. God makes Brian and I one. We don't make each other one. So we come to a a situation here because we have to ask a question. All right. (laughs) Now, Lord, you have revealed koinonia. You have put things upon our hearts about how we're supposed to live that out and what that's supposed to look like. But we still have to make a choice. 
looking at everything around us, we had to ask the questions. What question? What is preventing us from living in Koinonia with those whom God has called us to live in this life together with? Yeah. What what was what is preventing us, Brian? What's preventing us? Yeah, and, and Giles, I think that's a great place to wrap this up and to put a tie on this and to and to leave it out there that we've defined this term and we are now sitting with this question that you just asked and it's it's uh, it's a great one for us to consider. I hope that our listeners are going to engage with that question as well. What does Koinonia look like for you? Mm. What is God, what relationally, what spiritually, what generosity is God calling you into? Take some time to really ponder, does my church life, does my home life, does my spiritual life exhibit these fruits that we're seeing in this Acts 2 and Acts 4 in the early church that Jesus was directly a part of? Yeah, and next week, Brian, I'm excited to talk about because we're going to talk about what did we, what did we come to? What was the decision? What did Koinonia look like? And then what it led to. Um, but yeah, it, that's a great. Those are great questions for people listening because you may not have heard these concepts before. You may not even have thought about things outside of a certain box. We hope that this stretches your mind because we know that the Spirit will do a work within it. And it will help define. Remember, God creates the koinonia, right, Brian? God creates the koinonia. But we need to seek, we need to ask, and we need to knock. Because God wants us to do those things so that we can join him in this koinonia that we call life. Yep. What a great thought. Thanks, Joseph.